Hello, everyone, and welcome to another hot piping episode of The Doctor Is In, my semi-regular show. Semi-regular. It comes out when it wants to. Semi-regular show where I, Paul Verhoeven, your host, talk with luminaries from across the world of Doctor Who. Now, this week, I have a very special guest, the absolutely brilliant and incandescent Nick Briggs. Nick, I'm not going to apologize for calling you incandescent because, frankly, you are. You're also the executive producer at Big Finish. Now, on top of everything else, Nick is also a fantastic writer, director. As you're about to find out, he does an upsettingly good Tom Baker impersonation. And he's the voice of the Daleks and the Cybermen in New Who. We had what I would regard, frankly, as a very long very odd and profoundly wonderful chat last week, and it brings me great pleasure to play it for you now. We kick things off by talking about a mutual friend of ours. <laughs> I, have to, I have to start on the record by, because I'm friends, I've become friends over the past eight, nine months with Dirk Mags. Oh, um, yeah. He's lovely. And we talk, <laughs> it's gotten really nice, because I interviewed him for a piece about his Alien 3 audio play for Audible. And I got to interview Lance Henriksen and it just became this weird friendship. And, and I told him that we were chatting and he said, I need to call you an utter bastard. And, <laughs> and, he, and he said that was okay. I don't think yes. that. Is that okay? Of course it is. I know Dirk really well. I mean, you know, my history with Dirk is that I admired his work before mm. I was doing my work professionally. Sure. And... At some point before Big Finish started, Dirk, myself and some other people went to Dirk about potentially doing Dan Dare audio series. And Dirk was in his office at the BBC then, you know, he was a producer at the BBC Mm. and he uh, was extremely encouraging to us. But he said, I don't think I can get it off the ground here, but, you know, keep me informed. And we did a pilot 10 minute episode. And uh, he uh, phoned me because people used to phone each other in those days. And uh, just out of the blue uh, and just said, I've listened to what you've done. Um, I just think you can make it much, much tighter. You can pare it right down. He said, I, th- I think you can make it five minutes, if maybe even shorter. Sure. So that that is my, he said, it's great, but see what you can do. So I went off and I really, and I was using old four-track Porter Studios cassette format. And I really hacked it down. I changed the music. We'd had some beautiful music composed, very grand and slow and everything. And I just mm. kind of went, da 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 and that was it, you know. Um, and I cut it right down and I sent it off to him. And then, I don't know, weeks, months later, again, he just phoned me out of the blue and he just, he said to me, I've, I've listened to what you've done. I've got no news for you on whether we can make it happen. He said, I just want to tell you what you did was brilliant. Never, ever edit edit anything less fast than that. You know, whatever it was, whatever better word he used. Sure. Um, he said, just bear that in mind always. And I've always borne that advice in mind. I've never lingered. I've never, you know, I, I always seek for the point of something and then move move on to the next point. Don't be self-indulgent. Don't um, do what I'm doing now, which is find three ways of saying the same thing, you know, because that's what human beings do. We all say things through. You must know this as a comedian. People say things three times because they never get the pleasure they expect from their audience. You know, people will say, the other day I was walking down the road and this bloke came out and he bumped into me and, oh, I didn't, oh, I didn't know what to do. And so, yeah, you know, I was walking down the road. This bloke came out of nowhere. So I thought, I mean, he came out of nowhere. This bloke just because people aren't going, hooray. And people keep saying the same thing to get there. And eventually they just get tired. So oh, the job of defi- a comedian is to, yeah. is to just get that result immediately. Take a big breath, move on to the next thing, you know. Well, it's defibrillation. If, if, if they don't give you what you want, you just sort of keep wringing them dry, <laughs> you know, because it's about ego. Whereas, I mean, you, because... You know, you're an actor as well, but part mm-hmm. of your job at Big Finish is to, you know, take a back seat and curate the experience and make it happen. I mean, is that, is it weird to be, I know you're obviously still performing, uh, but when you do take that back seat, h- how did you get to the point where you were comfortable sort of taking the back seat and, and, and guiding things as opposed to being up on the stage, you know, ringing laughs or validation from the audience? That's a really good question. I've no idea how or when it happened. It's just like, you know, 
being slowly cooked in a pot. I didn't realise, you know, the temperature warmed up and I didn't know um, that it had changed. But I do think it's all part of the same process. It's all to do with communication with an audience and you're just mm. doing it from a different point of view. You're, you know, I've said a number of times and I guess the interview has started now. It probably started with the Dirk Mags thing, didn't it? <laughs> I don't, look, I, the thing is, I don't know. It could start in 20 minutes, 10 minutes, I don't know. I just, I'm trying to find an organic start well, point. Well, and that, that might I'm, be giving, I'm giving my all now, Paul, so Great. it better have started. It's in, we're in, all right? We're, we're wasted. <laughs> but, you know, you know, I do what I do uh, rather disturbingly, I always say, to make the crazy stuff in my head come to life. Sure. You know, that's why you play with toys when you're a kid, because you want to imagine these worlds are real. And as you get older, it becomes embarrassing to play with toys. I don't know why, but it just is. You know, mm. I try it now and again. Look, there's a little Dalek here, uh, you know, and I can look at it and move it around and everything. I'm just not getting the fix from it, you know. I feel slightly embarrassed that I'm a grown-up and I'm playing with a toy here. So instead, I get lots of people to say the lines that I've written and then get editing and music done. So it all sort of comes to life, you know. Yeah, yeah. And that's my favourite thing, really, particularly with Big Finish, to uh, write, uh, direct, sound design and do the music, to do the whole thing. And before I became exec producer and then latterly creative director... That's what I did at Big Finish. And Gary Russell would leave me on my own with certain projects. He just let me do the whole thing on them and stand well back. Because <laughs> he and I rarely agreed on anything. Really? Uh, and he would, let, he would let me do it. Oh, I see you've got a bit of a hint of scandal there. You're, 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 your no, eyebrows no, I just, went up. Really? The only thing, but the only thing that helps creation is when there's a bit of friction. You need someone saying no to you. Otherwise, you'll just plow on in weird directions, right? <laughs> That's true. That's true. I try to avoid people saying no to me as much as possible. But, um, but you know, you do you, what you do, by the way, is that you make sure that the people you're working with, you know, like the script editor and the members of the cast are people who you really respect, who are going to pull you up on things and going to say, I'm not sure this is working, Nick. I need to change this, you know. And I, that's what I did say with Dalek Empire. I had John Ainsworth working with me as a script editor. Anyway, to go back to the point I was making. Um, so that's my favourite thing to do. But then when I became exec producer, I realised that almost as good as that, as good as that feeling I get from doing that whole creative thing myself, is getting other people to be able to fulfill their wish to do that and guiding them as much as possible. You know, my, my guiding light is that I'm always looking for reasons to say yes. I'm not looking for reasons to say no to people. <laughs> Why does that make you laugh? No, I mean, it delights me for reasons, for reasons which seem obvious now. I mean, the fact is that who doesn't want to be involved in Doctor Who? Like, who doesn't want to be on board, you know, creating stories and contributing to what, I, I guess, what could loosely be called canon? There's nothing give, loose about it. I don't, see, I don't think it's loose at all. I think it's very tight. I think it's been doing its kegels. I think it's toned. I think it's fit. But, I mean, you held up a toy before. You held up a Doctor Who toy. Yes. And I can see something in your eyes when you talk about wish fulfillment, that there is something of a collector in you. And... You appear to be absorbing more and more cast members from the Hooniverse. And every time it happens, everyone reacts in a way which I assume is exactly the reaction you're looking for. I, you know, I assume that what you're looking for is people to scream audibly when, say, for example, Christopher Eccleston gets announced. Mm. Who's, who haven't you got yet that you really want? Obviously, Matt Smith and Peter Capaldi. There are, you know, we we have the rights to cover their yeah. eras of Doctor Who, sure. but we can't get them. Um, that's a shame, isn't it? Uh, hopefully, you know, I mean, let me put it this way. If, yeah. if Matt or Peter wanted to do it, they could be doing it now. But oh. for whatever reason that, you know, they don't feel the time is right for them. And maybe the time will never be right for either of them. I, I hope with all my heart that that won't be the case and that they will suddenly at some point or slowly they can do it at whatever speed they like frankly they <laughs> just say uh, to themselves yeah I think I'm ready for a bit of Doctor Who now but who knows you know I can't get inside their minds I can't make them you know it happened with Christopher Eccleston he he has decided for whatever reason and mm. You know, when we actually get into the studio or remote recording, however we do it with him, um, you know, we'll talk to him about it and maybe he'll tell us 
why he decided to do it. Or maybe he'll just say, mind your own business. I'm just doing it. All right. You know, John Hurt told us he did it because he was um, because he was ill and couldn't do anything else. And he said, really? that's he said, you weren't he said, you won't like the reason. You know, and I said, oh, that's fair enough. He said, but the thing is, Nick, now I'm here, I'm yeah. really loving it. He said, you know, I've done all sorts of things for all sorts of stupid reasons in my life. He said, like, you know, Caligula, you know, why did I do that? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, he said, you know, but you have a good time or you don't have a good time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it doesn't really matter the reason why. So I don't know. Maybe I can use threats. I don't know. <laughs> Sure. Or just big fruit <laughs> baskets. Because, I mean, there's so many people that you... Yeah. Just start. Just don't stop sending them. You have to yeah. you have to agree to the role or you will just bury their houses. Uh, oh, yeah. That, we'll do that then. I mean, right. we have asked asked them both a number of times, you yeah. know. So for, for those fans listening to this, it's like, why don't you get them? Don't, don't think we're not trying and don't think we haven't tried. You oh. know, we have, to, we have to tread a fine line between pestering and being mm. professional. <laughs> Is it like, is it like asking someone out? You can't go in too hard, or you will blow it. You get one actual chance, so you need to sort of create the environment which is conducive to a yes, right? <laughs> what soft lighting? <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? You know. Well, I I grant you, we haven't tried soft lighting. <laughs> That's not going to work in a phone call. It's not going to make any sense. It is a bit, bit difficult through an agent, isn't it, really? Yeah, just get anyway. the... Yeah, you wanted to convey the lighting through their words. I mean, look, look, we're sitting here talking about who you don't have as mm. opposed to sitting talking here talking about who, who you do have. And I think yes. one thing I asked Jason Hay-Gallery when we chatted a couple of weeks back, I said to him, everyone asks people who their favourite doctors are, and that's mm. fine. But what I wanted to ask you, because I asked him and he seemed to really enjoy it, and it's something that just absolutely kills me, is that Big Finish has characters that the show doesn't. I mean, hmm. presumably at, Big, at some point Big Finish will have everyone the show does, but there's characters that you have that the show doesn't have, and I think that's a strength. And I, w- I wanted to ask you, who are your favourite companions that were created specifically for Big Finish? I mean, a few leap to mind for me, but who are the companions, in the ca- not just companions, characters, villains, that you are the proudest hmm. of that the show doesn't have? Well, I'm really bad at favourites. Uh, and I'm not... It's interesting you said, well, there's a bit of a collector in you. I'm actually not a collector at all. Um, I'm not a cataloger and a collector. What I am is I, I dip into things that I love. So I'm right. not... I'm I'm quite... I don't stay awake at night worrying about people we haven't got because we haven't got the full collection. That I'm not a completist. Sure. Um, anyway, so it's difficult for me to... Um, the, you know, the position I'm in, the moment I say someone's my favourite, I just think of all the other people who hopefully won't be listening or go well what about me you know because I love them all and if there's any of them I don't love or really don't get on with I can't remember and even if I do suddenly remember I'm certainly not going to tell you I mean what comes to mind immediately is uh, uh, Charlotte Pollard and Lucy Miller Uh, because there's something about the eighth doctor adventures that for such a long time we felt like they were as far as we could go you know um so it felt like new Doctor Who, big finish style. Um, and also because with uh, Charlie, it was such an exciting time. Bizarrely, we thought, sorry, I thought it would be more likely that we'd get Tom Baker than we'd get Paul McGann. Really? Because Tom had a longer connection with Doctor Who and Paul yeah. McGann was just someone who'd done a TV movie mm. in Canada. So I didn't think... And then when that happened, I, th- I think it basically happened when his agent changed. His, changed. his previous agent was Janet Fielding. <laughs> we couldn't get any luck out of her. Really? And, uh, yeah. And then suddenly, you know, Jason did his thing of asking uh, every so often. And he asked mm-hmm. again. And the new agent went, uh, yeah, OK. It was like, oh, really? OK. <laughs> <laughs> you know. Um, so, you know, when we cast the lovely India Fisher, we all became friends with India. You know, we all went away and recorded it in Bristol. Yeah, um, where Paul McCann lived at the time. The deal was, you know, that he'd do it for us, uh, but he wanted to stay with his family. And I think um, Jason probably told you this, didn't he? That, yes, that he if did, we yeah. if we did it in Bristol, mm. he would give us he would have more time available to us, especially if we did it in a studio. It was just around the road from where he lived, which is exactly what we went and did. And so when we were there, we were there, we were staying away, and we all uh, stayed in the same hotel. And it becomes there's much more camaraderie. 
And so, uh, you know, India has become a great, great friend of mine, you know, because of the pandemic and also the fact that she's got a couple of kids. I don't see so much of her anymore, but we do. When we communicate, it's a lot of communication, you know, it's a big catch up. So, yeah, I, I adore India and think she's an amazing actor. And uh, and it was just, and she really, her and Paul really took to each other. I remember, this would probably embarrass her if she were to hear it, but I remember when I was giving a note to uh, both of them, really, about how we were ending, I think it was ending the first series, and how he um, was sort of saying, you know, do you want to carry on travelling with me? And I was trying to uh, let India know, how special that would be to Charlie and how she'd jump at the um, chance. And Paul McGann said, oh, yeah. And he, he, he said, to, so it'd be like I'd say to you, would you like to come on holiday with me? And India just went, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, that was a bit too real. Um, you know, so the enthusiasm, the way they got on was fantastic. Yeah. And it was, yeah. it, was, it was lovely to witness. Um, and, you know, we've gone from strength to strength with Charlie and I won't let go of her. I mean, I'm still, there's still a third series of her solo adventures to do. And we still intend to do something with her and the Eighth Doctor. Oh, God, thank you. So, yeah, that, oh. that is coming. And mm. that's probably an exclusive. I can't tell you any more than that. Sheridan Smith... Jason had been pushing for Jason is you see a lot of people think that Jason's just the business guy the money man but he has a big creative influence you know we have uh, David Richardson you know who's a senior producer and I have big conversations with Jason on a regular basis where we go through what we've got planned and Jason sort of listens and goes oh yeah and then Jason suggests stuff and then Jason suggests incredible casting so you know at the the big finish 20th anniversary celebration party I made a big speech to say you know don't think that he's just the business guy he's not he's you know he's he's very hands-on in a kind of hands-off way you know he trusts us and lets us get on with stuff but we're all, and we always feel we can ask him. And I say, you know, Jason, we're thinking this. And he goes, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. How about, have you thought of, oh, there's another thing here. Or sometimes he'll even write a bit of storyline or a tiny bit of script and say, I think, you know, and he'll send an email and say, I think it's something like this, isn't it? Right. And, you know, so that doesn't happen all the time. And it mostly doesn't happen, but it does happen. And it's happened very recently as well. Um, so Jason had always had in mind sheridan smith he'd met sheridan got on with her i don't know whether he'd actually worked with her but he said you know and i was thinking oh well some girl from some blooming awful you know young person's comedy that i've never seen that's the spirit whatever it was called (laughs) yeah pints of lager and a packet of crisps i'd never seen it you see yeah yeah. never seen it if Mm. i'd seen it i would have realized that it was a revelation she was amazing in it anyway I hadn't seen it. She came in and did an audition. We auditioned quite a lot of people. One of the actresses at the audition said, you seem to have every northern actress in the country down in the waiting room there. <laughs> you know? um, but Sheridan just, she came in and she knocked it out of the park. Not only was she brilliant, but she made us feel brilliant. She made me feel brilliant too, because the scene... Um, we'd written for her that I had came from a script by Steve Lyons, but I'd significantly rewritten that script, if not totally rewritten that particular scene. Sorry to Steve Lyons, who's a brilliant writer and a lovely human being who's listening now and grinding his teeth and going, oh, Nick Briggs and his rewriting. <laughs> and uh, Jason had read the scene and he was a bit sort of lukewarm on the scene. And I said, no, no it's a funny scene. She's funny. You see, Lucy's funny. Oh, yeah. OK, well, whatever blooming Nick Briggs and his mad ideas and then Sheridan did the scene she saw she's like a heat-seeking missile for the truth and what's fun yeah and she just it all just the the thing that Jason was seeing as rather dull you know how like um a firework display thing saying happy birthday looks really dull unless the fireworks all go off on it it looks sort of dull like that to jason and then when sharon did it, did it it lit up and sparkled and sparked and looked huge and amazing and i sort of looked at jason and said that's it and he was sort of laughing i said yeah it's meant to be funny that's oh. that's it she's got all the jokes so she made me feel like a great writer <laughs> 
And there was the same reaction when we were doing it in studio and Paul McGann kind of looked over the mic at us. It was like, this is good, isn't it? This oh, is really blooming good. That's great. So I love Sheridan. And she's um, such a... Um, a powder keg of emotions and uh, you know Sheridan and I uh, have wept a lot in studio at moving moments and we've laughed so much there was a story we did called Orbis where she had to be uh, I think a character called the headhunter who's another one of my favorite characters played by Katerina Olsen it was she basically materializes the TARDIS over an ocean and then boots uh, uh, Lucy out and so Lucy spends a lot of time in an ocean and we wanted to get this really right. So we <laughs> Sheridan had a bottle of mineral water, chucking it all over herself. So you had that genuine choking in water thing. But she was getting so wet. We, we were putting tea towels on her and everything. And we were just paying ourselves laughing. It was ridiculous. So, yeah, those two in particular have a real... Also, uh, Sheridan, the first thing I did before I became executive producer was I was producer of those new Eighth Doctor adventures. Yeah. So that was a really significant time for me. That was when I was working out what kind of producer I could be. Mm. And I realised that I was going to be the kind of producer who found people who I thought were brilliant and pulled them in and worked with them. So I had Alan Barnes, um, a script editor, who was mm. just amazing at coming up with great ideas, and Barnaby Edwards casting it. But Barney also being very interested in the stories and scripts. So Alan, Barney and I would have really deep conversations about where we were going with this particular series the luxury of only having to worry about that series at that point (laughs) very quickly i had to worry about everything um but uh yeah so uh, that that was delightful actually it's delightful when you have a productive creative relationship with someone because i was i know gary russell warned alan barnes you know you he said you'll never get on with nick briggs he's just a chaos machine really yeah, yeah. And of course, Alan and I, we knew each other peripherally. And then he asked me advice on a storyline. And I said, are you sure? And he said, well, you know, we'll be working together a bit. So I gave him some advice. I went through it and said, look, I'm sorry. You're going to have to, I think you'd have to, if I were you, I'd chuck all this out. And, you know, and Alan was delighted. He just said, oh my God, that's exactly what I thought, but I didn't dare think it. And you've you've said, I, I completely agree with you. It's nothing like agreeing with someone to want to work with them is there really? oh god you know? yeah I, I i know what you mean i mean it seems so interesting because you are clearly a creative you are clearly a you know you're sort of firing off in all these different directions i have adhd so i get very very easily distracted and i basically just i see a shiny thing and i get super obsessed with it and yeah. i i know you do an i don't know what i've got by the way i've probably got, got something but it's never it's never been diagnosed you've got something it's a rainbow <laughs> i was talking to my dad this morning and we both sat down and went oh yeah i probably got it from you we realized my dad just doesn't make eye contact during conversations so it, he's definitely got something but you do have that creative thing of just wanting to do all the things yes, how has doctor yes. who held your focus for this many years and do you fall in love and out of love with aspects of it or is it like a constant laser beam of passion that you have that's a really interesting one i i often wonder uh, a doctor who feels so fundamental to me it feels um somehow it got lodged in there at a very early age and mm. i'm i'm not sure when what my first episode of doctor who was that i saw i just i remember william hartnell as the doctor um, you know, so I don't, I don't know. I can't work out my first memories that I can just about recall of watching him. It didn't seem, they don't feel like I was thinking, oh, this is a new thing. I don't know about this. I, I remember watching it and it being something that I was very familiar with. So mm. I think it predates my ability to remember, you know, they say you don't remember anything before you're three, you know, uh, and I certainly see that with my son, you know. We took him on a lovely holiday, well, holiday convention tour to Australia when he was three. He remembers nothing of it. You know, he Waste saw the most money. amazing these. <laughs> well, <laughs> luckily it was a convention, so people were paying for us. So that's yeah, great. Right. <laughs> great. <laughs> but yeah, it's such a shame because we had such a glorious time and I loved it there. I really did. I'm not just saying that to you because you're an Australian. It's oh, true. I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of England. I wish I was there right now. <laughs> Do you? Oh, goodness. Not, um, not, not, not in terms of its general geopolitical landscape and the weather, but I just I just like the pub food and I like the landmarks. I oh. like that there's castles every three blocks. You know, I just I like yeah. it. Yeah, well, I'm with you there. I love England as well. Yes, I, I. so Doctor Who 
no matter what, I always go back to it. There must be times when I get a bit jaded about certain kinds of Doctor Who, but oh, frankly, not for long. <laughs> I do love it. You know, when I feel, if I feel down, and I do, and I do struggle with, um, um, I don't know, it probably is depression. Again, I've never been diagnosed, but I do, I do have very dark times when I, I feel terrible about everything. And I can always cheer myself up with watching the mask of mandragora or the daleks or you know, even even the wheel in space which is rubbish <laughs> it really is rubbish the wheel yeah. in space Are there, if there's one thing you take away from this interview is that the wheel in space <laughs> is rubbish that's i'm leading with that i'm gonna i'm gonna re-edit the whole thing so it just starts with this no no this is the beginning of the interview okay everything else axed I love it but I love it though I still love it even though it's rubbish that's the thing I'm famous for liking rubbish things I love Death of the Daleks people really think Death of the Daleks is rubbish and Revenge of the Cybermen people really think that's trash I love it I love it but the other thing that keeps me focused on Doctor Who is that before I was exec producer I used to do lots of other things even at the start of me being exec producer I did other things lots of theatre tours you know I wrote an adaptation not that long ago of um Jekyll and Hyde yes. toured it round, you know, and I toured as um, uh, Sherlock Holmes, and you know, so I did other things. But then within Big Finish, I get to do other things. I've got, I've done The Prisoner, doing Space 1999, mm. uh, wrote my own thing, The Human Frontier. So I get to uh, focus on other things, uh, and that's quite fun. It's a whole different thing, you know, when when you're dealing with Doctor Who and you're directing it and you've got these important star people who really mean something to you and you're sort of in love with them and scared of them all at the same time and finding the how best to talk to them without sounding like a total fan idiot. Uh, I have to say myself as a fan idiot, not that fans are idiots, folks. But then when you work on something that's your own creation and you have yeah. a choice of all the actors in the world to work with and none of them are... are You've cast them because you think they're good and none of them have arrived as part of the package deal. So that's a different experience Mm. and it's very freeing. I mean, I do love working with the doctors and companions as well. So I'm I'm not, it's just nice to have um, a change really. And that's, that goes back to your point. That's what, that's what keeps me focused on Doctor Who is I can occasionally dip out of it. I don't feel that much of a need to dip out of it, but I think occasionally I, I, I do have to. You can't. It's a balance. It's a diet, right? Yes, exactly that. You know, I mean, I'm very much the kind of person for eating the same things all the time. Chips. Just chips wall to wall. (laughs) Doctor Who is chips and you need some goddamn vegetables. Is that what you're saying? (laughs) Yeah, I love vegetables too. But, you know, for example, I used to eat cheese sandwiches all the time. I don't eat them anymore because I've got gallstones and the cheese is what makes them go crazy. So I've cut cheese out of my diet, right? Which oh, no, was, no, oh, no. Yeah, really? I know. I can't have it. I can't have it. Yeah. Terrible, terrible. Uh, it's easy to uh, remind myself that I mustn't have it when I think of the agony. I once oh. had, I don't know, 12, 13 hours of agony. I mean, screaming agony, like someone stabbing me in the stomach. Oh, sure. Agony. Like elsewhere, when that episode of uh, Deadwood, where Al Engine had to pass a gallstone without any anesthetic. It's horrifying. It's- Good God. No. In this metaphor, what is Doctor Who? Is it the gall... <laughs> I, I I guess no no the metaphor yeah. was about the cheese, so I used to and every now and again I would change. <laughs> Sorry, I thought, the, I thought I was, the cheese was the metaphor. Yeah yeah see I see what you mean. The cheese is the metaphor, not about yeah, whatever. Um, this is getting very confusing. Uh, I must get some cheese. No, <laughs> uh, but what I'm saying is that I will repetitively from day to day eat exactly the same thing. So instead mm. of cheese, now I have vegetarian. Um, chicken so it's not really chicken it's fake chicken but it's good and i have it with radishes and um salad leaves and cucumber and a bit of mayonnaise lots of pepper Mm. and i love that and that's what i will have for lunch today uh probably with some beef flavored crisps just so you know and i will have that day in day out but i have to have moments where i don't do that i have to have day every two weeks or something where maybe i think hang it all i'm gonna have soup or 
Steph, my wife and I will decide to go out for lunch. Yesterday was our last day before another lockdown. So we went down to the beach. I'm lucky enough to live in what is essentially Broadchurch. It's certainly where they shot it uh, because I'm just down the road from Chris Chibnall. I was speaking to him on the phone the other day. He said, hello, neighbour. I said, hang on, shout loud enough. I probably won't need the phone. You know, so, so I know it's totally coincidental. So we went down to the beach and had fish and chips in a lovely restaurant down there so you know what i mean is i i take a break from the same thing so it's almost exactly uh the same as my taking a break from doctor who you know so fish, I, and chi- I, fish and chips is the prisoner and the lovely mayonnaise beef crisp fun time extravaganza you're having is doctor who and it's the thing you do most of the time i think i'm back on the metaphor train now i think i kind of yeah okay. yeah yeah i yeah, think that's works. pretty much what we're saying sure but you, you said before you were a f- <laughs> It's very silly. You said before you were a fan, but mm. you're on the show. You're you're part of the show. How can someone part of the show be a like a gibbering wreck when they meet X number of actors from the show? You're part of the show. Well, I'm not a gibbering wreck. I've I, I used to be, but I, I I feel the gibbers there in me. Sure. Is that the gallstones? <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> But I contain it, but I never quite... But it's also connected with imposter syndrome, isn't it? Uh, you know, that you don't think you're good enough. Mm. Um, and that that stems in me from the fact that, you know, my family have no um, connection with entertainment. Uh, the, the, the only connection I can think of is that my brother, who's nine years older than me, he loves it when I say that. He doesn't love it. Um, He's he he's retired now because he's nine years older than me. Um, he uh, he used to be a newsreader and journalist. Right, that's it. He did toy with the idea of being an actor when he was at university, uh, a polytechnic as it was called in those days. Um, but he he very sensibly decided that would be a mad and irresponsible thing to do. Sure. He got himself proper jobs and has always had proper jobs. You know, he was chief press officer for the Automobile Association in this country. And uh, then he worked, you know, in radio as a DJ and presenter, and, you know, and ended up with BBC up in the the north, um, BBC Newcastle, as they like to call it up there. Uh, so, but anyone else? No, there's nothing. And also, our family has never amounted to anything. Someone, uh, my mother-in-law, looked into our um, family tree. Like, if not that they would, because uh, I'm not famous. Uh, but if anyone tried to do, who do you think you are? Which is a British show about you know um, yes. your family tree, mm. and they take some famous person and they find out that you know. Uh, like like Jodie Whittaker, they find out that her family were scabs during the general strike, which was very upsetting for her. <laughs> it would upset me as well. Uh, and they find out interesting things. There's nothing interesting about my family, I've discovered. They're all, it's all just dust and peasantry. You Jesus know, there's, Christ. There's no, no one achieved anything. I mean, one, I spoke to my late uncle, obviously before he died, lovely, lovely man, miss him greatly. He told me about, another relation slightly distant who his only claim to fame was he worked in the docks as a uh, some kind of mechanics mate handing him tools and one of the great four funneled liners it might have been the lusitania was in dry dock and the guy was repairing the turbines you know the things that whiz round and create yeah and they're very delicate things actually and he accident this guy accidentally dropped a spanner in the turbine which meant you can't, those things can't run with a spanner in there. It would shred the engine. So the whole voyage had to be delayed while they took the turbine apart. And all the passengers had to be put in expensive hotels in Southampton. This guy was sacked, of course. Uh, that That's the one claim to fame in the extended Briggs family, that someone was incompetent enough to drop a spanner. Yeah, but the thing is, I think the Lusitania, my history's a bit wobbly, but I think that was the ship that rescued the Titanic. Now, if it had gotten there a few no, hours... No, it wasn't. Was, no, it no, wasn't. it wasn't. No, oh, no, damn, no. I thought this was the guy that maybe got Leo killed. Oh, okay, that would have been... No, it wasn't the Lusitania anyway, I don't think. I can't remember which one it was. Um, <clears throat> it could have been the Aquitania. I don't know. It was, there it, was too the Carpath- it was the Carpathia that uh, sure. went to the aid of the Titanic. The Dawn Treader rocked up and, you know, just threw some ropes down. <laughs> I think what I'm finding out is that you are the interesting one in your family. You, you're it. I think you're it. You've oh, screamed mate. at David Tennant. You, you, are, you are the interesting one. <laughs> oh, uh, but, wow, thank you. I'll take that. I'll be the interesting one. 
Sure. I mean, know. my family, my father and my mother, yeah, I lost my father about four, 14, 15, I don't know, a long time ago. And again, miss him dreadfully every day. Um, it, you know, he and my mother, who's still with us at the age of 91, she, they are storytellers. Mm. They, when they, they don't do it professionally, but when they tell you something, there's always a point to it. Yeah. Uh, even if it's just about shopping, you know, there's, you know what I mean? So structure, I think there's structure, I've been, yeah. There, yes, exactly. Mm-hmm. There's a point to it. And I realised, you know, speaking to other people's parents as a kid and growing up, I, I realised how often people would speak and there'd be no point. No. And I'd always be trying to anticipate the point of the story. You know, someone would say, well, we put the concrete down, you see, and then, um, then it was drying and I walked off. And I said, oh, then you forgot and walked back through the concrete. No, it was it dried and it was fine. I think. Well, why are you telling me this then? If there's no if there's no punchline to this story, what is the point of your story? There was no point. A lot of people speak with no point, and I realise that I'm always there's always a point, even yeah. though it might be a bit rambling, as you probably gathered. But you structure things in a certain way. Yeah, that is interesting. So you are the first one to deploy your creative skills in a in a career based way. It's not that the rest of your family couldn't have done that they just they just didn't and then of course there's your brother who as you mentioned is nine years older than you and hasn't yelled at david Tennant. so i think um I think <laughs> he's done all sorts in- of amazing things you know oh, sure 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 he's met prince philip i mean who hasn't it's like a bicycle <laughs> at this point um we- <laughs> i've not met him i met prince charles weren't how was he was he was he nice well he's really nice i mean they ought to be nice you know I mean, they're very privileged to get everything they want. Yeah, if they can't yeah. be nice, then what's the point of them? No, he was, yeah. he was very nice. He was very nice. I couldn't understand what his wife said, though. You know how... Uh, this gets rid of the possibility of my knighthood. Um, the, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know how uh, posh English people... Uh, they speak, hey, ah, back in the yeah, head. Yeah. The voice hey, goes right, right back there. Yeah. And uh, I'm not even quite understand what they're saying. And, you know, I had, and plus the fact that I was terrified. I suddenly realised I was terrified at meeting someone, you know, the, the future uh, King of England. If he plays his cards right. Um, and Wait, that's sinister. I was really, uh, <laughs> I am sinister. I was really, really scared and intimidated all of a sudden. I'm, you know, I'm not, I, I don't think ruling a country just because your family used to rule it you know i don't think that that's a basis for government and sure. you know so we've got a constitutional monarchy and they're very good for tourism so great um uh, so i wasn't you know massively respectful before the events but mm. as i was meeting him i suddenly became massively intimidated i mean to the point of shaking oh wow uh, and so i was fine but he was very clear and measured when he spoke to me and i got everything he said but then she asked me a question and I didn't understand what she'd said. This is uh, Camilla. Did I mention her name? That's her. She's married to him now, I believe. Yeah. yeah. And um, yeah, yeah. she asked me a question and I didn't understand. So I said, I'm, I'm sorry. No, you didn't. And so, so she repeated the question. And now either she was being understand, or I was now just so nervous that even if someone had shouted something in my face or written it on a board, I still wouldn't understand it. And I didn't. Out your ears, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't understand what she'd said again. And I remember thinking, I can't ask again because this is just rude. So then I did something which is possibly the stupidest thing I've ever done. I attempted to answer a question that I hadn't heard. With Prince Charles and Camilla both looking at me, you know, because they come over and they give each person a little bit of time. And they were there. They were the two of them looking right at me. And I went, "Eh, well, you know, I uh, hoping they'd get bored and go away. But they were, the more I didn't answer the question, the more they sort of looked at me as if to say, of course, this is all in slow motion for me now. For them, it's a fleeting second in their life. But for me, it's this is now going on for hours of me going, oh, it's, uh, you know, I, you know it's probably. <laughs> you know, and, and she's looking at me as if to say, obviously that's not good enough for whatever question she asked me. And I kept looking at Prince Charles as if to say, you're the one I can understand. Please, you say something to me. And then, you know, and he was looking at me as if to say, why are you looking at me? She's asked you a question. And it was just, and eventually they just walked away. And I just re- remember thinking she must have been muttering under her breath. Extraordinary fellow. Or probably completely forgot me instantly. But it was, it was a very bizarre experience so weird that you would get i mean it's so interesting because you are 
you claimed to be fine beforehand and then you, you know, gently fell to pieces just for a moment. Oh, yeah. Did you experience that when you met, say, Tom Baker? Did that happen because he's royalty as well? These, you know, Whovians are royalty and you probably have had more exposure to the luminaries of Doctor Who. Did you, did you contain yourself in the moment? You've had a few big meetings in your life. Well, I'd met Tom Baker when I was a kid, when I was like 13 or 14. Right. He signed a copy of something for me in a local news agent. Um, and I then met him much later to do a Mythmakers video interview with him. So I'd already got over the kind of, and I was terrified of him then. I sort of got over that then because he'd been very kind to me on the day we filmed this thing you know um i don't feel i made any kind of connection with him because tom lives in his own world i mean his own world is extremely entertaining and and mm. you know and you sort of adore him for it so when we finally uh went to meet him to ask him about doing the big finish stuff tom and i had already had um a strange series of email exchanges some of which i felt where he didn't really know who he was talking to sure um, I think he confused me with Michael Stevens, who runs uh, BBC Audio, over a couple of things. Mm. Um, but um, and then he would just send me emails saying, "I've just been to the garage with my dog Poppy," and um, uh, you know, and I didn't know what those were about really. And then um, this was years ago now. And then uh, David Richardson and I. So, you know, I said to Tom, you know, I suppose we should meet now. And he was originally saying, oh, I think we should meet uh, in, uh, this is all in an email, but I imagine it in his voice. He said, maybe uh, Pret-a-Manger, somewhere simple. That is <laughs> the best Tom Baker impression I have ever heard. <laughs> I don't Chills. think it was Pret-a-Manger. It was somewhere, actually, it was, a, it was um, Eat, they're called. That's right. There's a um, a load of food shops called eat. eat and i you know I thought, what you know because i think i'll take him for a nice posh lunch somewhere he didn't want to do that anyway right. it sort of came about that we would just go and see him and of course he lives in a place that the sat nav cannot get you to does he yeah and on the way there he said he said you'll get to so and so and he said um but then phone me and i'll talk you in <laughs> And we got to the point where the sat-nav wasn't making any sense. And I'm literally driving, holding the phone, you know, in that way that's completely illegal. Now, I'm not sure it was then, so I think I'm okay. Not quite confessing to a crime. Uh, and he, yeah, he said, uh, you want to take a left there and a right there? And there's a little <laughs> gate in front of you. Yeah. And then, oh, that's where we are. So anyway, but I said to David Richardson when we were on the way there, I said, you know what our job is today, don't you? I said, our job is not to talk. Our job is to listen and to laugh. At every joke he makes uh, and that way he'll like us sure. <laughs> want to work with us yeah. and uh, Tom says you know when I asked him you, you can hear it in the interview CD we did you know why did you come back why did you say yes he said well you laughed at my jokes and I'm very vulnerable when people laugh at my jokes <laughs> I thought yes we got it. I mean it wasn't difficult because he is funny Sure. But he did this weird thing, which I don't know whether you've heard me speak about before. He had a notepad in front of him while he was talking to us the whole time. And every now and again, he would look down at the notepad and refer to it like there was a list of ideas. And say, so, oh, yes, another thing, we could, there could be a dog who phones up and the doctor speaks to it. And it just barks. And the doctor says, I see, I understand, and puts the phone down. And then that could happen, couldn't it? You know, we go, yeah, that's a brilliant idea, Tom. And we actually did do that. We had someone randomly put that in a script. And when Tom got to it, by the way, he said, what's this nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but the funny thing about the, the notepad is that it had nothing written upon it. Piss off. Yeah. And I've said that, I've told Tom about it. And he, go, and he said, well, it must have just been nerves. <laughs> Just, I, and he, that's it kept really cracking me up the fact that he was referring to a blank notepad I'm doing that thing I'm telling you the story again I've no, told no. you the story shut up carry no, on no 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 <laughs> I want I want you to ring this one out because what I love is the fact that first of all I love the fact that Tom Baker is potentially so eccentric that he yes. befuddles Satnev like he's like a giant yes. man right <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah that's it and I love the idea that potentially he is the doctor and he's referring to a notepad which documents things that already happened and he needs to make sure they <laughs> happened that way that's it isn't it it's psychic paper that's what it was <laughs> oh a thousand percent and he can't tell you that 
But the, also the thing about him then not understanding the dog thing, which no one understood, but Justin yeah. Richards, who wrote that script, dutifully put it in because David Richardson. <laughs> luckily, it was in a situation where reality was breaking apart. So yeah. David said to him, look, maybe a dog phones up. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, Justin's like, what? What do you mean? You know, anyway, he did it anyway, I, I imagine. Um, but that crystallizes the absolute truth in my book about Tom is that he lives in the moment and yeah. things are massively important to him in the moment and then they don't mean anything a day later or even an hour later or 10 minutes later so if you if Tom has Tom has loads of ideas and some of them are fantastic some of them are really to do with character interrelation and, and they're quite often they've been about someone else getting a better line you know, so it's not all me 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 with him mm. but then sometimes they're just nuts things you know and he's equally he's equally passionate about both and has seems to have no perspective on which one is the sensible suggestion because oh, he doesn't think anything a- should make sense he gets very cross with me when i say well it doesn't make sense oh you wanted to make sense do you you know he just <laughs> thinks i'm crazy for there to be any internal logic in doctor who you know as far as he's concerned all bets are off right. it's all preposterous and it's yeah. bonkers but then we've learned this brilliant compromise where he says to me he says well, I'll say it anyway, and you can cut it while my back's turned. And I get, and and I used to not say anything to that, but you know, more recently, I'd got into the habit of saying, "Okay, I'll do that." He says, "Yeah, that's fine." So he doesn't care whether his suggestion ends up in the final production. He just wants to have done it. He wants to have said it, and it's right. gone. He says okay. he doesn't listen to them, but then he says the sound design and stuff is very good, isn't it? Anything. Well, you haven't listened to it. So, and they go, ah, oh, well, so you never quite know what the truth is with Tom. And that's the way he likes it. He's the storyteller and you don't ask him whether it's true. So he's like the fourth Doctor. Are there any other actors who play the Doctor that you've worked with who are that much like their on-screen counterparts? No, no. I mean, Sylvester is, uh, there's, there's a lot of Doctorness about Sylvester, mm. uh, you know. And he is my favourite Doctor to have a drink with. Why? You know? He's just... It's just fantastic company and, and um, we'll buy you a whiskey. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Colin has been very important to me because he helped me with my acting career. Because I, when I met Colin, I'd given it all up. I was just doing, you know, interviews and I interviewed him for Myth Makers. And he said, oh, you're rather good, you know, blah, blah, blah. Are you an actor? And I said, yeah, I've given it up. I'm working in publishing now. And he went, oh, right. well, if you ever need a hand, you know, oh. I'll, I'll. And he did. You know, I called him up and many actors had promised to help me and never did, but he did. And he got me a job in a theatre, got me back into it, you know. And as I have reminded Colin on a number of occasions when he's been a little bit irritated when I've been at a signing with him and my cue's longer than his. I say, yeah, but the only reason I'm here is because of you. And that's that's true. And, you know, you've been around a long time. So a lot of these people who are dying for your autograph, you're all signed up with their stuff. They've, you know, they haven't got me yet because I'm fairly new on the block. But I'm only here because of you, because you got me back into acting. And if I hadn't got back into acting, I would not have got the job as the voice of the Daleks. So he's always pleased to remember that. The, the others, I yeah, they're... I mean, Paul McGann is very much the kind of actor who projects his own personality, isn't he? Mm. Um you know, he doesn't put on a weird voice or anything. But uh, I, don't, I don't think anyone is quite as um, doctorish in real life as Tom. Although there is a, it's not the same as the Doctor. Tom Baker is not the same as the Doctor. He's... Weirder. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but in a lovely way, obviously. Oh, 100%. Yes. I'm so charmed by these stories and I, w- I wish I'd recorded it because you know one of my um, uh, routines at the studio before the pandemic was I'd go into the studio an hour before mm. everyone else arrived and Tom would be there as well he'd either be sitting in his car outside reading the newspaper or, or he'd come in and we would have about an hour or so just the two of us and we'd just talk about everything and anything you know and he gave me a pair of his shoes uh, yes. One day, we right. we had this sort of thing where we would talk about shoes a lot. I don't know why. We just got this thing, and in the middle of conversations with other people, we'd go, "Nick, uh, I notice you're wearing a new pair of shoes. Uh, how are they?" <laughs> you know, and people would stop there. What's going on? And we would we would sort of play act this conversation about shoes for people's entertainment. I say entertainment; they look fairly blank, you know. And then one day, he brought in a pair of shoes. He said, oh, "These are for you, Nick. I thought you'd like them." <laughs> Do you still have them? 
Of course I have them. I'll never get rid of them. I nearly asked him to sign them, but that just seemed mercenary somehow. So no one will believe these shoes are Tom Baker's. But, you know, they they are Tom Baker's. He also bought me a book. I can't remember what the book was, and it was all annotated inside. So, you know, and he would tell me all sorts of unrepeatable things about Doctor Who and and about life and always asked me about my son which i just love him for how's your lovely little boy he'd oh. say you know i say in the past tense because of course you know it's all done remotely now yes tom is um a fantastic creature it's very apparent how much you love this it's very apparent how much it's it's oozing out of every pore of you it's really nice to talk to people who are involved in a thing and go oh that's they 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 really care about it it's very it's very nice. If I talked to you and you were jaded, it would have broken my heart a little bit. Um, well, so there'd be no point in me coming on and being like that, even if I was having a down day. You know, I'm a performer, and to some extent, this is a performance. I've been looking forward to it as well. Oh, thank you. I was starting um, to worry. I was starting. He said, oh, he hasn't been in touch, but you left it until 10 minutes before to get in touch. Oh, I was. No, we were most watching people Annie. who do interview. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen Annie before. There's a th- she kicks the crap out of a, out of this street urchin ten minutes in, and have you, it's bizarre. It's I've never seen it actually. I'm very aware of it, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's an odd film. But I mean, the point is, I I just um I I knew we'd be talking. I was very excited, but I also didn't want to play hard to get. I didn't want to seem too needy. So much like you approaching the actors who you want on board, I thought I'll just you know what I'm just going to create a like like I said I'm going to create an environment which is conducive to seeming like I'm above it all, which I'm not. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, you're a pro, you know, that's what it is. You're professional. Okay. Thank you so much for, for coming on and talking. I'm sorry, I'm sorry to have taken up so much of your time. This has been a long interview. Long. Well, I hope it's not been too boring. I mean, to be honest, I could just carry on. <laughs> oh, yeah, I can cut it there. And then I'll go back to the part where you um you said that Wheel in Space was crap. We'll just... Uh, yeah, we'll just whack that straight in. We'll Actually, just minutes. keep putting it every every five minutes. Just throw that straight in. I, I will do that. Good. If there's one thing you take away from this interview, it's that Wheel in Space is rubbish. <laughs> and that's it. That's Nick Briggs. What a wonderful, lovely chat. It got a bit weird there in the middle, but if it doesn't get a bit weird in the middle, it wasn't good, was it? Now, you can and you should head to bigfinish.com and check out the incredible array of releases just pouring out of the place right now. There are some wonderful ones out at the moment, and they're having flash sales all the time. So if you're a bit nervous about where to start with Big Finish and you're a newcomer, feel free to hit me up on Twitter at TDIIPod because I'd be happy to give you recommendations. Have a great week, and I'll see you next time for another episode of The Doctor Is In. Bye.